Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales, Canberra campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. On the 2nd of August 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait, which resulted in a brutal six-month-long Iraqi occupation of the country. In response to this aggression by Saddam Hussein, the United States under President George H.W. Bush marshalled an international force sanctioned by the United Nations to put pressure on Iraq to withdraw from Kuwait. This was Operation Desert Shield, but the campaign ultimately led to military action to eject Iraqi forces in Operation Desert Storm, otherwise known as the 1991 Gulf War. The Royal Australian Navy was involved in both operations. The Navy had not operated in the Arabian Gulf since World War II, but these operations presaged the longest involvement by the RAN in a theatre of operations. An RAN ship is still in the Middle East as we record this episode in 2020. This is the first of four episodes dealing with the RAN in the Middle East since 1990. In the first two episodes, we will cover the RAN in operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. To discuss these operations, I'm joined by a very distinguished panel. They are Vice Admiral Rush Shoulders, who as a captain was commanding officer of the frigate HMAS Darwin, which took part in Desert Storm. He later went on to be Vice Chief of the Defence Force from 2002 to 2005, and then Chief of Navy from 2005 to 2008. Rear Admiral Chris Oxenbold, who as a Commodore, was Commander of the RN Task Group in Operation Desert Storm. He was later promoted to Rear Admiral and served in a number of positions, including as Deputy Chief of Navy and Maritime Commander, retiring in 1999. Vice Admiral Chris Ritchie, who as a captain commanded the destroyer HMAS Brisbane during Operation Desert Storm. He later went on as a rear admiral to be commander of Australian Theatre and was chief of Navy during the 2003 Iraq War. He retired in 2005. And finally, Dr David Stevens from the Australian War Memorial. He is an author on the official history project that is writing up Australian operations in Iraq, Afghanistan and East Timor and is also a member of the Naval Studies Group. During his former naval career, David was on Commodore Oxenbold's staff during Operation Desert Storm and was also with the RN Task Group as a naval historian during the 2003 Iraq War. Thank you all for joining me. So first off, David, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait caught the world somewhat by surprise. What was the international response? Yeah, well, the invasion came in the wake of uh, several weeks of diplomatic tensions between Iraq and Kuwait. Uh, Iraq had been claiming that Kuwait was stealing its oil, and of course, Kuwait refused to capitulate to Saddam Hussein's demands. It's also worthwhile to remember that it came in, this invasion came at a turning point in world politics, with the communist bloc disintegrating in what many hoped would be a new era of global cooperation. And in something of a test of this new order, the United Nations Security Council called on Iraq to withdraw on the day of the invasion, and then when this demand was ignored, passed a resolution as early as 6th of August, establishing a complete economic embargo. Now, soon more than 30 countries had offered support to what became a US-led build-up of military forces in the region, and Australia was one of the early contributors. Prime Minister Hawke announcing on the 10th of August, so just um, eight days after the invasion, that his government would commit two of our guided missile frigates, Adelaide and Darwin, and the replenishment ship HMAS Success. Now, this was under the code name of Operation Damask, and the three ships, and indeed the Navy as a whole, 
immediately began their deployment preparations. Ross Shoulders, at the time of the Prime Minister's announcement, as David's just mentioned, the Navy task group was expected to deploy in 72 hours. Now, you were appointed Darwin's CO at short notice. What was the reaction on board? And can you tell us a little bit about what was required to get the three ships ready in time? Well, it was a very busy weekend, as you can imagine. Uh, as has just been noted, the Prime Minister announced the deployment on a Friday morning, I think at around 10 o'clock. Um, exactly 72 hours later at 10 o'clock on the Monday, uh, the two frigates departed. Uh, at that stage, uh, success had been at sea. She was, uh, she was south, so she'd been recalled. So she didn't deploy with the frigates uh, who left on Monday to ammunition uh, and left Sydney Harbour that Monday afternoon. The three ships had uh, recently returned from a major exercise in the Pacific, Exercise RIMPAC, so they were reasonably well worked up. Um, Darwin, my ship, had just entered a uh, maintenance period and had just uh, undertaken a fairly major crew change having returned from RIMPAC. Um, the Adelaide had been at sea that week, and in fact, I'd been on board Adelaide. I came back into Sydney Harbour uh, that morning, that Friday morning in Adelaide, to be told that uh, Adelaide would be deploying on Monday and that I would also be deploying in uh, HMAS Darwin. As you can imagine, the weekend was taken up in large part by um, uh, obtaining stores and putting those stores on board. In my ship, we had a particular task in that uh, we'd not had the Seahawk helicopter on board before and we therefore didn't have Seahawk stores. So we embarked a large number of Seahawk uh, equipment. Not, none of the ships actually had a lot of uh, um, nuclear, biological or chemical stores, NBC stores on board. So we had to find those and get them on board. None of the ships had decent um, sea boats, rigid hull inflatable boats were just coming into fleet at that stage and none of us had them. Uh, somehow they managed to be found and, and got on board by the Monday morning. As I mentioned, the three ships had just returned from a fairly lengthy deployment. There had been some personnel changes, but I think Darwin was probably, uh, had had the most personnel uh, turnaround. About 30% of people had changed out in the ship and so uh, we had a fairly significant turnover, whereas the other two ships uh, really maintained pretty much what they'd had during their uh, Hawaiian deployment. The, the reactions on board and uh, surrounding the ships during that very busy weekend were, were all very positive. Everybody worked with a, with a will that I'd not seen before to get the ships ready, at least in terms of what we needed to, to, to get underway. Um, I think people were probably uh, a little bit anxious about what we were getting into, but at that stage, we didn't really know what our tasking would be, so it was more a, a, a it was more hand, all hands to the pump uh, to get the ships ready to go, than worrying about what might be coming to us uh, when we did get wherever it was that we were going. Chris Oxenbold, during this chaotic and very truncated preparation phase, Commodore Don Chalmers was appointed as the first RN task group commander. Can you tell us something of his background and why he was selected for the role? Yes, uh, Don Chalmers was an accomplished and very enthusiastic navigator. Uh, he had extensive experience at sea and had filled all the challenging navigation billets uh, throughout his career, culminating as the navigator of the carrier Melbourne and also on, at 
uh, maritime headquarters, he was the fleet navigator. He gained command of a, the guided missile destroyer Perth as a commander, and his naval career was also well balanced. The sea experience was matched with a, an array of challenging shore postings in diverse areas that honed his analytical skills. He had been the services representative in the Force Development, Development and Analysis Division and the director of the Navy's Tactical School. And Don had earned a reputation as an exemplary planner, a lateral thinker and a very professional operator. In, in August 1990, he was the Commodore Flotillas or Comflot at Maritime Headquarters, having assumed that position in March of that year. The position had been established only a few years before and at the time was responsible to the Maritime Commander for operational training standards and the maintenance of those standards within the fleet. And also there was a secondary role that he had that he was to be available in a contingency to assume operational command of forces assigned for a specific task, such as the Gulf deployment. Don was staff trained uh, at both the United States Naval War College and the Royal College of Defence Studies in London. These courses and extensive involvement in international exercises and planning forums over many years provided a large group of colleagues and friends from other navies that proved useful in the Gulf. Besides those in the United States Navy and the Royal Navy, one in particular was the Chief of Naval Staff of the Royal Omani Navy, who attended RCDS with Don in London. And this relationship assisted in gaining relaxations for the task group to operate in Omani waters when necessary for inter later for intercept, opera intercept operations, and also in establishing the logistics support element at Muscat. Don Chalmers was the right person and he was in the right position to be the task group commander. Well, Shoulders, on the passage from Sydney to the Gulf, the ships of the task group, of course, worked up. Can you describe for us the threats you were expecting and how well the task group was able to prepare for those threats? Yes, it was a very intense um, uh, passage to the Gulf. We were worked up uh, in all areas of warfare with a the principal focus, primary focus on anti-air warfare. At that stage, of course, we didn't realise or didn't know uh, what particular threats we might be facing. So the decision was taken that um, we would focus on high-end warfighting uh, and damage control. As things turned out, uh, we got it pretty much right, I think. I would like to um, just acknowledge the work of the Sea Training Group, uh, led by Comflot, uh, Commodore Chalmers at the time. Uh, it was a small group who um, worked between the three ships as we headed northwest with a very high speed of advance. Um, they transferred between the three ships and um, basically called in all sorts of strikes, uh, all sorts of damage, which we had to deal with um, by way of working ourselves up. It was a high speed of advance, essentially success uh, worked up to maximum revs and proceeded at 18 knots. Uh, the two frigates would um, sprint ahead and suffer some sort of damage or airstrike or whatever, go dead in the water while success passed us, and then we would sprint to catch up. Uh, that continued for 
pretty much the entire passage. We did have one night, uh, uh, an overnight in Western Australia where final stores were embarked and uh, last-minute changes to people uh, were made, but that was less than 24 hours. The rest of the time between the time we sailed on the 13th of August and uh, when we arrived in the area of operations uh, three weeks later was pretty much spent at a very high level of intensity. There was a, a clear anti-air warfare focus um, with magnificent support provided to us by the Royal Australian Air Force. We had F-111s, F-18s, Learjets, uh, all coming at us constantly, three or four, sometimes five raids a day. Uh, and those raids continued pretty much up until we got past the Cocos Islands. Uh, the Air Force would base themselves wherever was nearest to the task force and would um, be called in by the Sea Training Group to conduct raids, and we, of course, had to try and deal with those. We also spent a significant amount of time on damage control, um, and again, Sea Training Group were outstanding in terms of teaching uh, the ship's companies and uh, showing us what, what might have occurred um, had things gone wrong in the area of operations. We were uh, expecting that there might be some chemical warfare or biological warfare and uh, used our um, nuclear, biological and chemical defence suits, our uh, NBC protection masks. Um, we just weren't sure whether we would need to use that, that equipment when we got there, but we certainly um, broke it out of its um, store area which, where it had been for many years. We'd not practised that for a long time. We did practice it on the way to the Gulf. Uh, and ultimately, I think when we got to the area of operations, and I think um, uh, Admiral Chalmers is quite, uh, can be quoted as saying that he thought we were the best prepared task group that he'd ever been involved in at that stage. And I can uh, I could support that, certainly from where I was standing. It was a very intense period of professional development for all of us. Uh, I think by the time we got there, we were ready. So David Stevens, after a rapid preparation, a quick transit and an extensive workup. The task group arrives in the North Arabian Sea to join the multinational naval force on the 3rd of September. Can you tell us a bit about how the coalition then formed under a US command arrangement? During the passage across the Indian Ocean, there'd obviously been much discussion between the ships in Australia about how and with whom the, um, the ships would operate and exactly what they'd be doing. And it did take a while to work this out. Uh, it helped that on the 25th of August, there was another United Nations Security Council resolution, which imposed a shipping blockade, calling on all states to, who, that were deploying their own maritime forces to use, and I'll quote here, such measures as may be necessary to halt all inward and outward maritime shipping, at least giving that, those clear instructions. Um, now, as the largest contributor, the United States Navy, not surprisingly, took the lead in developing the command and control system initially setting up what they termed as the Multinational Naval Force, which over time evolved into what became the Multinational Maritime Interception Force, or the Maritime Interception Force, or MIF for short. Eventually, there were um, 21 nations providing warships um, as part of the MIF. Yet, of course, each nation brought their own rules of engagement and their own limitations on what they were allowed to do. And of course, not all of them were willing to place their forces under US control. So the MIF as such was never formally instituted at this stage. 
Instead, command and control rested on what was called loose association, loose association. not really a, a doctrinal term that anyone had seen before. But what it meant was that each nation was able to commit in the manner that best suited their own national interests, with a local US naval commander hosting a monthly con conference for all um, contributors, which would assist with the coordination. And this meant that some nations would be operating completely separately and just telling the remainder what they were doing, and other nations would be working much more closely with the United States and uh, cooperating. There are shoulders within this quite unique command arrangement. What was the assigned role for the RN task group? Initially, uh, as we departed Australia, our tasking was, was very limited. We were allowed to contact, identify, interrogate and warn uh, Iraqi uh, ships under a Security Council resolution, which uh, had been issued on the 6th of August. On the 25th of August, um, another Security Council resolution um, permitted interceptions. So our tasking then uh, became, and I quote, to prevent the import or export of all commodities and products to or from Iraq or Kuwait. So we were into a, uh, a blockade situation, although nobody, of course, used that, that term because that had sort of some, some other legal connotations. As we arrived in the Gulf, um, it was evident to um, those working in Australia and also the CTG and the ship's CEOs who'd been working these issues since we'd left um, Fremantle that there was one particular area where um, a lot of activity would occur, and that area, of course, was uh, right in the Straits of Hormuz. So um, our CTG, uh, Commodore Chalmers, claimed what were then known as the Alpha Areas, and he gained the approval of the Maritime Commander that we, the frigates, uh, should patrol in that area, which was essentially right in the uh, right in the mouth of the Gulf of Hormuz to the western end of the Gulf of Amman. Uh, those areas having been claimed by Australia, and I use the word claimed advisedly, uh, were endorsed as Australia's areas at the Naval Planning Conference, which was conducted on the 9th and 10th of September. Uh, the two frigates had been in those areas since about the 5th or 6th of September uh, and had established a, a fairly uh, watertight, I think, um, uh, surveillance area. We knew what was coming in, what was going out. We were embarrassed uh, early in that period by not being able to do much about the traffic that we were seeing. There were two contacts of interest uh, in particular, which we tracked uh, on the 7th of September, but we were not permitted to, uh, to do other than interrogate them. Uh, we tracked them through the Straits of Hormuz and handed them off, passed them on to uh, a US ship, which was working um, inside the Arabian Gulf. That was a little embarrassing uh, and it allowed, I think, at the time, um, the Maritime Commander, the CTG and those working in Australia to uh, seek a relaxation of our rules of engagement, which did come, in fact, on the 10th of September uh, when our rules of engagement allowed us to conduct boardings from that point onwards. So for the next two months, um, September and October that year, uh, both frigates basically uh, worked initially in the Gulf, uh, the Gulf of Oman and the Straits of Hormuz, and then as the trade or as the traffic started to come around um, the coastline of Oman from Aden, our op area tended to move out towards the eastern edge of Oman, uh, out to, towards Mazira Island. And as the 
the month of October ended, um, both ships were pretty much working uh, that eastern side of, uh, uh, of Oman as we um, intercepted and boarded Iraqis trying to come back. Yeah, Russ, just to continue that story for a minute, you've said that the RAN now had a new role, an interception and boarding role, but the RN didn't have much recent experience in boarding large merchant ships, did it? So what challenges did you all face and, and how did you train for that operation? Um, major war vessels had no experience really in um, boarding of other vessels. Of course, the, our, our minor war vessels, our patrol boats, um, had been uh, intercepting and boarding fishing vessels um, for many years and they were very good at it. Uh, the bigger ships in our fleet had not done that for many years, so uh, we did need to learn and learn quickly when it became obvious that that was going to be our major task. There were organisational issues, as you would imagine, um, which we'd not really had to confront for some years. Uh, who should be in the boarding party? Should it be somebody that can be uh, you know, allowed to leave his, his uh, action station, uh, or should it be the gunnery officer, uh, given that the when you're doing a boarding, there might not be a threat that he needs to be involved in. So the composition of the boarding party was one issue. Did we have the right weapons? Answer, no, we didn't. We had to get the right weapons. Uh, we didn't have the appropriate communications that we needed. Um, I mentioned earlier that we had not really had uh, decent boats and frigates for a long time. Uh, fortunately, we had embarked rigid hull inflatable boats, which we were, we were able to use um, in, in subsequent boardings. And we'd not really thought about how we would use the helicopters um, during the boarding process. Uh, certainly we knew how to use them for surveillance, but how would we best use the helicopters during boarding uh, process? All of those issues and many others we had to relearn. We did lean on very heavily on the US Coast Guard uh, who were operating in the area in detachments called law enforcement detachments. Um, one of those particular de detachments had been uh, embarked in the USS Goldsboro. Uh, and we asked them to come over and uh, give the frigates advice on how best we might achieve these um, unfamiliar boardings that we're now involved with. We also set up um, uh, several opportunities, many opportunities, in fact, um, to board each other. The frigates would board each other, one, play, one playing the, uh, uh, the boarded ship and the other boarding party being exercised. And we used success uh, as a, a target as well. Uh, one of those particular Training episodes became infamous in the middle of September when video of uh, Darwin's boarding party um, conducting training on board success, which was known as the L fatigue at that stage, um, some of that training activity was was videoed, and that video was subsequently released, um, unfortunately, back in Australia, um, and caused some consternation and concern back here. As the boardings, interceptions, and boardings went on. Uh, we, invariably we invariably operated with other uh, nations and we learned from them as they learned from us. Uh, we learned particularly from the US Marine Corps who were embarked um, in, in supporting vessels for many of the boardings. We, we learned uh, significantly, as I mentioned, from the US Coast Guard law enforcement detachments, but we also did boardings uh, where the US, US Navy's uh, special forces were involved and where the Royal Navy were involved. Each uh, nation did things slightly differently. Uh, in particular, our rules of engagement were all slightly different, uh, but we all learnt as we went along. And by the end of uh, 
my time in, in those boardings, which was pretty much the end of October, um, we had learnt uh, the best way to conduct a boarding uh, and how to maintain momentum uh, so that you achieve what you might need to achieve. Uh, we learnt from each other. And again, by the end of that process, and I think as we saw when the second task group came up, um, they had listened to the lessons that we'd learned. Uh, I think all the ships that were involved in the Gulf uh, uh, from a standing start became very, very good at uh, major boardings. David Stevens, as Russ has just described, by September and October, the RN task group is deeply engaged in interdiction operation. But can you step us back for a minute and tell us more generally about the campaign? So what was the approach being taken by General Norman Schwarzkopf and US Central Command to achieve the ultimate goal of liberation of Kuwait? Sure. Well, you know, obviously the uh, maritime sanctions campaign was only one element of the ongoing and, and the uh, ongoing US and international response. And in one of his early decisions, uh, the US President George H. Bush decided that military power offered the best hope of deterring or halting um, further Iraqi aggression. And on the 6th of August, he ordered uh, American forces to Saudi Arabia under Operation Desert Shield. Now, the Commander-in-Chief of US Central Command, General Norman Schwarzkopf, he was the senior US commander in theatre, and thereafter he established his forward headquarters in Riyadh. There were two phases to um, Operation Desert Storm. The first was the defensive phase, which lasted from August up until October 1990. The second phase were the preparations for future offensive operations to eject Iraq from Kuwait, and these lasted up until about mid-January 1991, when Operation Desert Storm replaced Desert Shield. Now, that's quite a, uh, an extended time, time frame, and this was largely due to the two phases involving such a massive build-up of US military power. In all, the US had to ship more than 2 million tonnes of equipment across the globe, together with half a million tonnes of supplies and well over 200,000 personnel. And of course, from a naval perspective, the important thing to remember is that while most of these people deployed by air, more than 90% of the cargo came in ships operated by US Military Sea Leaf Command, which meant that control of the sea was a critical enabler for the whole operation. So, Chris Ritchie, this is a good point to bring you in because as the first task group settled into their mission, it became clear that a replacement, a second task group, would be needed uh, before Iraq could actually be ejected from Kuwait. When did you learn about the composition of the next task group and what work was needed to prepare the ships for that operation? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, well, Brisbane had arrived back in Sydney from exercise pitch black, the uh, air defence exercise in northern Australia, on 6th of August and we went into a leave period. Um, by the 21st of August, which was just a week after Darwin and Adelaide had sailed, um, a Middle East deployment was proposed. Uh, our original program was cancelled uh, and we were sort of back in business. Pretty quickly, it was decided that we would fit the ship with two phalanx classic weapon systems uh, coming from Canberra, which was in refit, uh, and another one intended for New Ship Melbourne, which was still, still building. And the first meeting for uh, for that took place on the 24th, 4th of August. It was a planning meeting. 
Uh, as a result of that planning meeting, it was realised that uh, we'd have to do a few other things, and that was to take off the the Davids, uh, the whale boat personnel boat. They'd all have to go uh, in order to allow for magazines for the closing weapon systems and strengthen decks on both port and starboard sides. So that meant uh, that instead of um, the boats that fleet edges traditionally carried, uh, we were to get two rigid inflatable boats and the saloon arm Davids that went with that. Uh, we also had uh, satellite communications installed. We had uh, an electro-optical surveillance system installed. We had a chemical detection and alarm system. We had Kevlar armour placed around the uh, external structure of the operations room. Um, we took on board radar absorbent material panels that made the ship look like it had grey washing hanging out most of the time, but these were panels that looked a little bit like gym mats, which were designed to reduce radar signature. And we also installed a homegrown continuous saltwater spray system on the hull to reduce the thermal signature. That too had some um, undesired effects in that we found out much later that as well as reducing the thermal signature, which it did, it also encouraged a bright orange algae growth all over the hull, which we were totally unaware of. Uh, until the US ship brought it to our attention in the Gulf, you know, some, some considerable time later. Now, all of that was major and significant work uh, and completely changed the ship, really. Uh, and it was completed effectively in six weeks, uh, September uh, and the first two weeks of October till we went, sailed on 15th of October for work up. And I think that um, we ought to pay a lot of credit to what was then called ADI Naval Engineering Division, uh, who did most of the work, but Navy Office was involved, FEMA Cuttable were there, Naval Support Command was in it, DSTA was in it, and a number of commercial firms, but they did a fantastic job. And um, CNS at the time, um, Mike Hudson, took a, a great interest in what was going on and, and visited the ship on fairly frequently to make sure everything was going well. Chris Oxenbold, while the first task group was sailing and deploying, you were in Southeast Asia commanding the destroyer HMS Perth. Can you tell us a little about your selection to command the next task group? Yes. Um, Perth was alongside in Hong Kong during the first week of September in 1990 when I received an unexpected message. There was no prior telephone calls or any of the other uh, forms of whispers that often precede such signals, and it was a genuine surprise. Uh, the message was that the second task group was being prepared for deployment and that I was to be the task group commander. I was to hand over command of Perth to the executive officer, Commander Phil Purnell Webb, in three weeks' time at Singapore, fly home, take a week's leave, and then join Maritime Headquarters on promotion to Commodore to commence workup of the task group which was to deploy early in November. As you can imagine, uh, this was an exciting and pleasing prospect. And considering that the first task group had only just arrived in the Gulf of Oman, it was advanced contingent planning and good notice in the circumstances. The Maritime Commander, Rear Admiral Ken Doolan, uh, had recommended the appointment to the Chief Naval Staff, uh, Vice Admiral Mike Hudson, and I was in a good position having just brought Perth out of a lengthy modernisation and through a comprehensive trials program that included a full workup. Perth had then deployed to Southeast Asia in May in company with Swan 
and we were engaged in a busy series of exercises with regional navies. Within a few days of Ken Doolan becoming the Maritime Commander in July, he joined Perth at Pulotiaman off the east coast of Malaysia to observe part of the five-power defence arrangement exercise Starfish. And this was only a few weeks before Iraq invaded Kuwait. So I was fresh in the Maritime Commander's mind, fully prepared and match fit. And noting the composition of the task group, Ken Doolan also considered that it was an advantage to have had command of both a guided missile destroyer and a guided missile frigate. Ross Shoulders, returning to the Gulf operations for a moment, not all of the merchant ships, of course, obeyed the direction of the coalition naval forces enforcing the sanctions. Can you tell us a bit about what happened when Darwin intercepted the 150,000-tonne Iraqi tanker Amaria? Yes, the MRI was our um, most complex and, in fact, our final boarding uh, from Darwin's perspective anyway. Uh, it occurred on the 28th of October off um, the east coast of Oman. As you mentioned, it was 150,000 tonnes. Uh, she was in ballast. She'd been um, monitored for some time, in fact, since the start of uh, a Desert Storm at anchor in uh, Aden. Um, she left Aden and was obviously on her way back to Iraq um, and had been um, tracked for some time by a, a USN um, P3 Orion, but they'd lost her. Um, we were scrambled uh, along with a US uh, ship, or two US ships, in fact, to find her uh, and to board her and verify that she was indeed in ballast. It was the most complex boarding that we were involved in because both sides had had learned the lessons of previous interceptions. Certainly the Iraqi uh, tanker captain had learned from, uh, uh, from or he'd, he'd heard what had happened before and he put everything he'd learned into, into action on that particular boarding. At that stage, we had very robust rules of engagement. Uh, we had uh, the on-scene approvals from our embarked, um, the commander task group, who of course was um, a Commodore Chalmers at the time. Uh, he was able to approve all steps up to direct fire uh, from on board the ship, which made it uh, very simple to move from one particular step to es escalate to the next one and so on. Uh, he used a, a very careful uh, series of steps, escalatory steps, uh, as we went through that boarding, which lasted from first light through till about 9.30 in the morning. Uh, the objective from our side was to uh, maintain the momentum and maintain the initiative uh, because we had had one previous boarding in which we'd been involved where uh, another nation had been the on-scene commander where it had taken over 35 hours to uh, bring the boarding to a conclusion and that 35-hour period had included about 23 hours where our boarding parties had been on board the vessel. Uh, we needed to maintain the initiative and move things along, which we were able to do because we had such uh, robust rules of engagement. So having, um, uh, first of all, found the vessel uh, and then moved in uh, at first light to uh, request that he stop and allow our boarding party to, to come on board, uh, which, of course, he didn't do, and we did that by radio. We did it by flags. Uh, studied ignorance was the, was the firm response that we got to flags and radios. Uh, we then uh, had the helicopter, our squirrel helicopter, 
hover alongside the bridge with a printed notice um, requesting that he stop and allow our boarding parties on board. Uh, they didn't even look at the helicopter, just maintained uh, speed, maintained course. Uh, we then followed that with uh, a series of aggressive manoeuvres across the bow of the vessel, um, which Darwin had done before to good effect. On this occasion, it didn't work at all. In fact, it, it did create a response from the tanker captain. He started aggressive manoeuvre towards us. So we pulled back from that. And uh, the next step was shots across the bow. Initially, they were from Darwin's 50 cal uh, at 300 metres and then 100 metres ahead of the tanker. Uh, still no response. The USS Reasoner, who was the on-scene commander, um, then fired two five-inch rounds across the bow. Still no response from the Amariah. Uh, we then organised a very a series of very low overflights um, by or using an F fourteen and F eighteen from the USS Independence, uh, which was working in the area. Still no response from the tanker. The next step in the uh, escalation uh, escalatory responses would could have been direct fire, for which um, the on, our on scene commander did not have approval. We would have had to go back to Australia for that. But we had rehearsed our reactions the day before um, with the uh, with the American on-scene commander. And fortunately, he had uh, some special ops forces embarked in the USS Ogden uh, and some Marines. And at that point, we, uh, we arranged for 30-plus special ops teams to embark in the tanker while underway um, from the helicopters, um, from two, two CH-46s, in fact. Uh, the tanker still did not respond other than to flood the decks with water and try and make it difficult for the boarding party, for the, for the US boarding party. Uh, they eventually did uh, round up all the Iraqis on board the ship, ordered the ship to stop, and uh, boarding parties from the two surface vessels then embarked and carried out the clearance of the vessel, which was proven to be uh, in ballast, and she was uh, released and uh, allowed to return to to um, Iraq. Interestingly, that ship, the Amariah, was sunk at her, her, her moorings um, on the 17th of January when the air war started. Uh, and there was a, a final Australian involvement with the Amariah when Clearance Diving Team 4 were tasked with clearing her, her of unexploded ordnance um, as she sat on the bottom uh, at the end of the war. So it was a complex boarding. It uh, used all of the steps that we'd been practicing over many months. Uh, and I think it proved that uh, we were up to the task. And Ross Shoulders, just to wrap up the first rotation, looking back, I mean, logistic support is of course critical deployed ships. Can you explain how the first rotation units were supported in the region, both at sea and ashore? Yes, the, the, the key here was uh, very early agreement to be able to use Muscat as a base for the ships and more importantly, as a base for what was known as the logistic support element. Uh, that was established in Muscat very early on. Uh, and as was mentioned by Chris Oxenbold, uh, part of the reason we were able to do that was because of the personal relationships that, um, that Commodore Chalmers had with the chief of the Omani Navy. Additionally, uh, in late August, uh, there had been a team uh, sent from Australia, led by uh, Vice Admiral Walls, or Com uh, Commodore Walls as he was then, and Captain Tim Cox. Uh, they had also negotiated uh, our, our um, 
ability to use Muscat as a logistic base. It was close to the area of operations as it was, as it was at the time. Uh, it had a, a very uh, capable international airfield through which we could forward freight. It also had a, a military airbase, uh, which was used subsequently by our C-130s at a place called Seed. And there was good road access to the UAE. The uh, majority of naval stores during my deployment came in through um, Muscat. Um, high priority store support from Australia was excellent. Anything we wanted, we got. We enjoyed a very high um, stores activity de designator um, uh, from Australia and pretty much everything we needed was, uh, was got to uh, Muscat very quickly and then out to the ships by helicopters if, if necessary. Fresh provisions were also arranged by the logistic support element, which was led by Commander Boyd Robinson uh, in Muscat. Uh, those fresh provisions were generally uh, shipped out to success uh, and she would do a, a swing through the port at the eastern end, sorry, the western end of the Gulf of Oman uh, at Fujairah to pick up fresh provisions and uh, subsequently pass them on to the frigates. We enjoyed excellent cross-servicing uh, arrangements with the US and if there was a part that uh, we couldn't get or we desperately needed we were generally able to get that through uh, through uh, material screens uh, through asking US uh, ships in the area could they assist us. Other than having Muscat as our logistics base the other critical part of the excellent logistics support we enjoyed was Success herself. Uh, Success provided everything she was always there um, when she was not replenishing ships, she was essentially arranging to replenish ships. She replenished anybody that needed it. Uh, certainly the frigates could not have been better served uh, in terms of everything that we needed, uh, which success was able to arrange um, with seeming um, uh, an ability that was amazing. In fact, as, um, as uh, reported by... The Minister for Defence at the time, um, Robert Ray, who spent some time in success, he coined the phrase that uh, the captain of success, Graham Sloper, uh, was known as the Arthur Daly of the Middle East. And in a sense, that was probably right because uh, uh, Graham Sloper was able to achieve amazing things with that ship. We certainly felt very well supported. This brings us to the 12th of November 1990 and back here in Australia, Brisbane and the guided missile frigate Sydney sailed from Garden Island as this, the second Damask rotation. Now, Chris Ritchie, we've talked a little about some of the materiel changes to the ships. Can you describe the renewed emphasis on NBC and damage control and what effect that had on the ships? Uh, yes, um, biological, chemical and damage control played a major part in the workup uh, and achieving the operational level of capability in that area uh, was certainly for Brisbane, uh, the most difficult uh, part of our workup objectives. Clearly, if you were going uh, in, in harm's way, if you always thought you were going in harm's way, then damage control was important. But so too was chemical and biological as the Iraqis were thought to possess weaponized chemical and biological capabilities. They were thought to be prepared to use them and indeed I think they had used them in the war against Iran in the 1980s. So the requirement, as Russ Shoulders said, the requirement for protection against chemical and biological attack was something that we hadn't really practised very seriously in the RN for some years. And if so, it brought new equipment, it brought new protective gear, it 
put the requirement to work in that protective gear. It bought, you know, atropine needles that you carried around. It eventually bought, uh, you know, things called NAPS tablets, for, which were anti-nerve agent things, bought all sorts of things, all sorts of challenges. Um, we had two weeks at sea working up before we returned to Sydney to finalise preparations for our deployment. And we sailed again, as you say, in, in company with Sydney on 12th of November. The workup as such continued until the 26th of November when we did achieve the operational level of capability a day short of Django Garcia. We were very well supported. Um, again, as Russ has said, the first deployment was by the Sea Training Group, uh, by the Air Force, by Target Towing Services. And indeed, we even had the services of the New Zealand tanker um, Endeavour until we were away off the West Australian coast. The final NBCD exam was extremely tough. Um, in real terms, uh, or in practice terms, fire raised in 50% of the ship. We were attacked with nerve and chemical agents. 25% uh, of the ship's company were deemed to be either dead or severely wounded. People working in the boiler rooms um, in protective chemical gear and masks uh, worked in temperatures which reached 150 degrees Fahrenheit, and that produced three real heat casualties uh, on that particular day. Fortunately, uh, those casualties recovered. There's a cartoon in um, Brisbane's Damask Line Book which records the fleet NBCDO uh, saying, both fire rooms are gone, all systems are down, the entire ship is either on fire or flooded, and everybody's dead. Now what are you going to do? And that's sort of, you know, the way that it was. That fleet NBCD officer was Lieutenant Commander Ted Walsh, uh, who was uh, fondly known as, as the Phantom. He was the man who pushed us to the limit to achieve a level of competence in NBCD that I think was beyond an anything that any of us had seen in our careers thus far. Ted was XRN and he'd had experience um, during the Falklands War uh, as the executive officer of an RN frigate. And having had that real-life experience was invaluable to us. I think that, you know, it's almost down to him that he raised the bar for NBCD and the RN to a level that I hope uh, is still being practised today. I recall that uh, I recorded in my report of proceedings our collective pride that the hard grind of workup had been worth it uh, and even a sneaking suspicion that perhaps the sea training group were quite useful chaps after all. And certainly they were because it was it was the pushing, the training, the relentless sort of you have to achieve this level that enabled Brisbane to come together as a team uh, and to come together as a team that thought it could cope with anything that might be thrown at it when it got into the Gulf. We'll now leave the story there with the first RN task group on station at the entrance to the Arabian Gulf and the second task group en route to relieve them. In the next episode, we will discuss the RN's role in the Gulf War. My thanks to Chris Oxenbold, Chris Ritchie, Russ Shoulders and David Stevens. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you all for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group in your search engine. Goodbye for now.